0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is the Swallow Your Pride Podcast and today's guest is Nicole Large. She's currently a second-year graduate student
1: at Abilene Christian University in Dallas studying speech language pathology and will be graduating in May 2022. She attended the University of North Texas for a bachelor's degree and graduated in 2020. She began her research of primary caregiver knowledge of prefeeding skills during her first year of graduate school because she was inspired by how dysphagia therapy in pediatrics involves more parent training rather than patient training. Uh, this was such a wonderful conversation with Nicole. She is such a such a brilliant, smart, caring, compassionate grad student, and I'm so grateful she'll be joining our field in just a few short months.
0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa
1: Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut... Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thank you so much for
2: joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
1: Of course, of course. So tell the people a little bit about yourself.
2: So my name is Nicole Large, and I am currently a second-year graduate student at Abilene Christian University, Dallas. And I am currently in my last semester. So I'll be graduating in May, which is super exciting with my degree in speech language pathology. Um, I'm currently also completing my last clinical rotation, uh, which is super fun. And I got my bachelor's degree from the University of North Texas in 2020. Uh, and I was also a research assistant there. So that's kind of what started my interest in research in general and then when I got to go to ACU Dallas the opportunity presented itself to complete research a research study during my master's studies and I was like why not let's go for it so I kind of wear the two hats of student clinician and I guess third hat of researcher so it's It's really... Fun, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah,
1: awesome. I did. I did a lot of research, and oh my goodness, I spilled my coffee all over myself yesterday wearing a white t-shirt or wearing a white sweatshirt. So if I do it again today, I'm just I'm over. Um. Anyways, I, I did a lot of research in in grad school as well. I was a teaching assistant, and it was interesting. I did all my research in child language and AAC, and now it's so funny that I don't work with any of that at all. So I'm thinking. I'm hoping this is not a precursor to. I'm, I'm hoping you continue on with this research and, and clinical work yeah, as, well, as you want to graduate.
2: And the main reason I wanted to do research is because I, I had such a passion for child or pediatric feeding and swallowing. And it's such a niche area that I was like, how do I get my foot in the door early? And one of the ways that I thought to do that was research. Um, Because a lot of times you don't get those opportunities very early on. So I was like, you know, what can I do now to set myself up for that? And research was kind of the the door that presented itself. You know, when one door closes, another window opens. So it was kind of the window for me. And I was great or I was lucky enough to complete a rotation during my research that uh, did involve pediatric feeding and swallowing. And that really just opened my eyes to to the field and, and how in depth it can go. I thought that I knew uh, like enough to do a research study when I first started, but I had no idea the amount of things that I would learn when I worked with actual kids and actual people with swallowing disorders. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what sparked your passion for working with this population? You know, um, it was always of interest to me when I was doing my bachelor's degree. But if, I'm sure, as you know, in undergraduate courses, they don't really go over swallowing disorders. They usually save that for master's level classes. And so I was always interested because I myself have personal experience I was a quote unquote picky eater, and so (laughs) I've always been interested in how we eat food. And I know that sounds really weird. Yeah, it's no,
1: it's it's the truth, Nicole. I mean, it's it's something that we just take for granted so much. And I think you know, I'm sorry to cut you off and go on a rant here. But I mean, I've dealt with that with my son. And it's just something that people are like, Oh, he'll learn, he'll he'll do it. And I'm like, but he's not like, and he's not just learning, you know, there, I need help. Absolutely, It's,
2: It's a skill. And I think that's why I was so interested in it is because you're right, a lot of people do take it for granted. And I worked with adults with dysphagia before I worked with Kids with dysphagia. And I think that that was also very helpful, you know, to, to see and to learn that education piece, especially of how do I educate somebody about their swallowing? Because you don't think about your swallowing. It's not natural to think about your swallowing. Nobody does that during a meal. Nobody thinks about, oh, how am I chewing this? How am I drinking this? How am I, how am I accomplishing this meal until something isn't normal. And that's kind of where we step in. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing of, you know, you're stepping in when there's already a problem, and you're trying to solve the problem. And the problem can't always be solved, but sometimes it could be helped. And I think that that's what I had to learn, especially with kids with eating disorders, uh, my research study is titled uh, Primary Caregiver Knowledge of Prefeeding Skills. And the main reason that I wanted to focus on prefeeding skills is this concept of anticipatory discourse. And it really has to do with learning about something before it happens. And how can that help you when you're actually experiencing it? And this is kind of what I was experiencing with parents that were coming in with their kids of like, there's already a problem present and I don't know what to do. And I'm freaking out and I'm scared and I'm stressed out. And this is just so hard. And it's like, to me, I want to help, you know, educate part of our scope of practice is prevention, correct? So it's like, how can we educate parents to be a little bit more aware of these pre-feeding skills so that maybe these early feeding experiences can can go a little bit better and maybe prevent, you know, feeding disorders like ARFID and stuff like that or this quote-unquote picky eating, you know, because it really has to do with those super, super early feeding experiences. So Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I love this conversation, Nicole. Obviously, I have such a personal, you know, attachment to it, but I think, you know, not to throw you into the mix of this, but you know, we just heard that the CDC has changed all of their milestones and, you know, some people are like, oh, but it's okay. And, and as a parent who's gone through this, I was like, this is not okay. And this is not okay because I can't imagine if my son didn't get help a lot earlier, how Much more medically fragile he would be. Um, and there's so much tied into, into, you know, feeding and nutrition. And we still work with a dietitian weekly and, you know, he's still, he's never been on the growth chart. You know, he's, he, he doesn't eat a lot. He doesn't drink a lot. So we're on this very fine line of, you know, malnutrition, dehydration all the time. And I can't imagine if we didn't get the early intervention that we had, you know, where he might be. Um, and, and I'm, you know, obviously, I'm upset about the CDC changing a lot of these guidelines, but I it's it's something that I really want to speak on a lot more to other SLPs to understand why this is an area we need to know a lot more with, and we need to be more vocal about it, and we need to educate more parents and caregivers. And you know, it's a reason I wrote my book too, because I I want to expose sort of these. These problems that are out there, but not just expose the problems, but show that we're SLPs and we have the skills that to, to treat these and to, to help these kids. So
2: absolutely. And I mean, everybody would know, you know, even if you don't necessarily work with swallowing disorders, everybody is aware that the earlier that we get a, a child who is experiencing difficulty, the more likely therapy is to be effective, right? We want them when they're little. We want them when that neuroplasticity is at its, you know, height, right? And so the thing that I find a lot is when there's already a problem going on, parents, I mean, truly being a parent is the hardest job anybody could ever do. And when every meal is hard and difficult in some way, that adds an insurmountable amount of stress to a family. And when parents don't feel successful in being able to feed their child, that's an incredibly hard ex- experience that I can't even speak on because I'm not a parent. And it, it takes a lot, a lot of counseling, um, you know, for those parents to be able to take steps back and to be able to, you know, almost kind of go back to those early feeding experiences of just reading babies cues of waiting until they lean forward and open their mouth to accept food rather than, you know, kind of pushing the spoon in their mouth. Like we don't, you know, encourage that because we want to follow their cues. And these pre-feeding skills are these uh, fine motor and gross motor cues that we're looking for in babies for them to be able to be ready to start solids.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. We're having this conversation today. I don't know what made me think of it this morning, but I just Something made me think of like, I can't believe how far I've come since having my son. I mean, he's six now, but I just think of those days when he was younger and it just, every meal was so traumatic. And it was like that too, just because when he was in the NICU, if he didn't reach that volume, it was considered a failed feeding or he was that much farther away from going home. And it was just, it was, you know, I just remember every time getting ready to feed him, it was so hard and so stressful. And I mean, even now he's six years old, it's still, you know, every meal we feed him four times a day takes 30 to 45 minutes. So it's, you know, it's still two hours out of my day that I have to spend feeding my child that, you know, my typical two-year-old you know, eats on the fly. I don't have to, you know, do anything for her. So it's, it's, it really is, I I don't like the word burden, but it, it really is just something that so many people don't consider, you know, if we can help these kids early on, we can really help to prevent a lifetime of, of these challenges.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, eventually I think research in the NICU will talk about some of these early feeding experiences, not only on the side of the child and child psychology and how that kind of helps their development later on, but also on the parent side of, you know, we use these terms like failure to thrive or a failed feeding or anything like that. And you're automatically putting a negative association with feeding and food in general, of not only on the child side, but also on the parent side. And parents attitudes and feelings towards feeding will usually impact their behavior during the feedings, which ultimately impacts the child's behavior during the feedings. And I'm sure, as you know, as a parent, babies pick up on our mood really easily. Yeah. And if you're already kind of unsure or stressed or Anything like that, a baby is super quick to pick up on that. And they're a lot more likely to also feel unsure and stressed. And then it's just a cycle because then that makes the parent more stressed. And it's like, how do we as SLPs kind of step in to break this cycle of stress and stress and stress and stress of like, where do we step in? To be able to say, hey, I want to not only help your child develop maybe some oral motor skills or maybe like some uh, desensitizing skills to certain textures or anything like that, but how do I also help you use certain skills in your own feeding to help you feel successful? I want both caregiver and child to feel successful. That's my ultimate goal. And so that's why I really focused on these pre-feeding skills in my research, because it was like, I mean, those are the first feeding experiences with solid foods. Even if it is just formula or breast milk mixed with, you know, some rice cereal, it's still different than a bottle. And that can be a really scary time. And a lot of times parents, of, especially parents of, children that are under the age of six months, their first question, whenever they come to see me is, when can I start solid foods? Like, when do I do that? What am I looking for? What, what do I do? And nobody talks about this. Nobody, you know, you don't get a parent handbook when you have a baby. They don't give you a book of like, oh, this is how you raise a child. You know, that book would be longer than anybody could read ever. And so truly it's just a guessing game. And so the the question for me is where do we as SLPs come in to educate early on to facilitate these early feeding experiences of these are the cues that I'm looking for before I start these solids because otherwise you might or the baby might be unsuccessful because of their feeding and swallowing development may not be at the point where it should be for the texture that you're introducing. And then that can make baby feel unsuccessful and then you feel unsuccessful and then it's just the cycle. Yep, yep. So so awesome, call. It was incredibly difficult to be able to plan a research study when I had never done research. <laughs> And I was also in graduate school at the time, and I hadn't even learned about swallowing disorders in general when I started planning for how I was going to do this research study. So I was very limited in time as well, because I wanted to be able to do it before I graduated. And so I was really only limited to about a year. And if you know anything about research, it takes a lot longer than that. So the main way that I chose to attack it realistically was a survey study. And while these studies might not be the most uh, strong in their evidence, it was realistic for me to be able to do it.
0: They're and very informative. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And especially with COVID times, I was like, how can I also do a study, you know, not only in this short time frame. With all of my other responsibilities, how do I also do it in a way that's safe and accessible? So for me, that was a survey study and I developed the survey for about, I would say four months. I think I spent developing the survey um, because first I had to figure out what my question was, obviously, and how I was going to attack it. So I started in January when I was able to Or January of 2021, when I was able to have my research question and uh, have my plan of attack. And so I started developing the questions. And then in the summer of 2021, I uh, was completing a clinical rotation at a skilled nursing facility. And that was my uh, first experience with uh, adults with swallowing and feeding disorders. So that is when I submitted to the ACU IRB, which is the uh, basically the board of uh, ethics, and so they took a look at how I was going to do it and who I was um, including in my research study and my questions to see if they were you know biased or unbiased and basically just meeting and checking all the boxes on their end. So. Um, they gave me approval about a week later uh, to go ahead and pu- uh, and to start my study. So from there, I had solicitation flyers that had a QR code on it for the study. So if you scanned the code, you would be able to complete the study. And then, so I used the flyers um, to pass out to basically everybody I knew that had a child. And um, I also did a lot of social media uh, promotion and a lot of SLPs in the pediatric feeding world were very gracious to me and were very helpful to me by sharing my uh, survey on their social media, which I appreciate so incredibly much. So I did recruitment for about three months Um, And at three months, I had had about 52 participants. And so that's when I started data collection and stopped the survey. So when I started data collection, this was in about September of 2021. And I was completing a rotation in a pediatric outpatient setting that was working with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, which was, Honestly, at the perfect time, because when I was interpreting the results of the study, I had kids in my office that matched the exact qualifications I was looking for. So it was it was truly a gift to be able to, to complete that setting at the right time. And actually, correction, I had about 63 par- overall participants, but we narrowed that down to uh, 46 participants in the survey because we excluded anybody whose first child was born before 2010 because we thought that the reliability of their responses would be less reliable if their child was born before 2010. Because as a mom, you can probably attest, you don't always remember, especially the day-to-day phase of your, your and I clients. purposefully
1: wanted to forget a lot of it to be honest so people will ask me questions and I'm like that was honestly such a traumatic time I don't
2: like exactly. yeah, yeah. So, and that was the thing so my my survey studies clarify was reflective in nature so it required the caregiver to reflect on what happened in the past so um It does rely on their memory and that's something to, you know, keep in the back of your mind when interpreting the results. It does require them to remember and that's a very tough thing to do. Especially if there's, if there were things that you weren't even aware of and you weren't even looking for. And so that's kind of what my, the questions of my survey were looking at. So I also did look at uh, participant demographics such as income level, Education level and age, age of the caregiver. And I used the term caregiver to be gender inclusive and identity inclusive and just family inclusive because there are a lot of different family structures. So I used the term caregiver for that to be a neutral term because I wanted to involve everybody. And I actually did have a couple of male caregivers in my study, which is really cool. So I took the demographic information to do data analysis later on. But the questions that I had in my survey were about these pre-feeding skills and the way that they were worded was taking a look at if these skills were present in their firstborn child before the parent started solid foods or the introduction of solid foods, which we can call maybe the weenie process, uh, as we know it as SLPs. And so the way that we interpreted this is if the parent or the caregiver was able to delay the process of starting solid foods before they saw this skill, then they were maybe inadvertently knowledgeable about the skill. But if they introduced solid foods before the skill was present, then they were not aware of the skill and therefore not knowledgeable about the skill. So that's how we kind of looked at their level of knowledge with these pre-feeding skills. And so pre-feeding skills more specifically were established by Morris and Klein. They have a big long book. It's really, it's really a great read if you work with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. It's really interesting to read. Um, but it's all about these pre-feeding skills. And in summary, to sum up, you know, their amazing book, pre-feeding skills are these gross motor, fine motor and cognitive skills that we look for in children before we start solid foods because i they coincide with the development of feeding and swallowing for them to be able to handle certain textures right and so the thing is is that we can't we can't know how their larynx is developing i can't see your larynx so we have to go off of these gross motor and fine motor and cognitive skills that we actually can see to then know when to start solid foods because the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that the introduction of solid foods should start at about 6 months but we know from these skills that just because they're 6 months old doesn't mean they're 100% ready right and so some of these skills are like um the baby should be able to hold themselves up in a seated position. That's one that a lot of people know. They should be able to hold their head up, uh, you know, so that's those gross motor skills. But some of those fine motor skills is that they should be able to pick up food with their hand, not necessarily with a pincer graft, but just picking up food with their hands. You know how babies do with their whole entire hands and they just grab it. And they should also be able to bring that arm and hand to their mouth. So hands to mouth, hands to midline, that's a skill. That's a skill that they have to develop. And so um, some of those cognitive skills that we're looking for is that they should be able to pause during bottle feedings or breastfeeding to kind of smile at you and interact with you. And really those are breaks that we naturally take during meals To let ourselves digest a little bit, you know, let ourselves breathe a little bit. Nobody just inhales their food. That's, that's not, that's not healthy. (laughs) You know, nobody wants that. And so they should be able to take those breaks of, you know, I'm just, I'm hanging out for a second. I'm just going to pause for a second and then I'm going to go back to eating. They should also be able to signal when they're full versus when they're hungry. So most parents will say, oh, I know when my child is hungry because they cry. But do you know when your child is full? You know, what kind of signals are they sending you to let you know that they're full? Are they kind of pushing away? Are they, you know, taking their, uh, are they stopping the suck of the bottle? Are they just kind of pausing? Are they just, you know, are they getting upset? Are they getting uncomfortable? Are they getting a little bit fussy? So those are signals, you know, that they're full and they should be able to do that, you know, to avoid this over stuffing, overeating. And so these are the kind of skills that we're looking for before we begin the process of starting solid foods, because those are what set the baby up for success when we start that process. I know that was like really long, (laughs) but does that kind of make sense? This is great, Nicole. Yeah,
1: absolutely. This is, this is wonderful. You know what I think is so interesting? You know, I, I love that you said that you, you know, had some, had some fathers, had some men involved in your survey as well. And I think what's so interesting is sort of depending on where my husband or I were like emotionally with coping with all of this, like, There was some things that he would pick up and just do innately. And he would feed, you know, I went through some times where I could not even feed him. Like I was just so distraught about it. And my husband was was able to feed him like successfully. And it was because he followed all of those cues. And I thought it was so interesting because I'm like, well, wait, like I'm the SLP. I know what I'm looking for. But I think I was also too too involved you know i was the distraught mom like going through you know postpartum but also i'm like i'm looking for this and this and this and i try to just be so like analytical whereas my husband's like no like just look at him like he's wanting to eat now or he's done eating like we have to respect that and i'm like oh. <laughs> so I, I think it's 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 fascinating what is sort of innate and and also what people need to learn and be taught and and i you know, as a mom and an SLP, didn't realize I needed to be taught so much about this.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, and and that's the funny thing. A lot of people will say the the field of speech language pathology is is a science, but it is also an art. Very much you know? so. Because yeah. when yeah. you're when you're working with human beings, it's it has to be both. It can't just be one or the other. And when we get too scientific. We run into the problem of we don't understand why these things that we think would work aren't working. And then when we get maybe too artistic, maybe then we start to lose the scientific side of, you know, we have evidence behind this approach. Let's use this approach because there's evidence behind it.
0: Mm -hmm. So we
2: have to have a balance of this art and the science. So you have to not only be able to look at the science of a baby, which is incredibly complicated, but you also have to look at the art of it, which of you know is the parent child relationship and the child's development with that relationship. You know, it, it truly is a mixture of an art and a science. And that's the hard part it's it's incredibly difficult and that's why it requires a master's degree, you know? And in even when you have that master's degree, you're not gonna get it right every single time. It's so hard. But like you said, I mean the best way for me in my personal experience is even if I'm working with pediatrics or geriatrics, is look at the patient. If I'm feeling stuck, just look at them. Look at just their overall well-being because i think with kids a lot of the times especially and especially with kids with pe uh, with feeding and swallowing disorders a lot of times you're going to get the volume 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 you yeah. know putting yeah. this volume intake and it's like look at the baby look at the baby if there's little baby rolls and they're happy and they're smiling at you and they're developing and they're growing okay and they look healthy, they don't look sickly, then we're doing okay, you know, it's, it, we're not in a dire situation. It's all going to be okay. And sometimes I have to, you know, help parents take that step back of like, look at their little baby rolls on their baby legs. Like, look at those chunky little legs. They're okay. You know, I don't, ha- I'm not seeing a thin, fragile, sickly baby so we're doing okay, you know, and now where do we go from here, right? So it's it's that counseling part plus that science part of being able to say, where do we go from here? Maybe I don't know where exactly they're going to be in six months, but I know our next step for our next session.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know,
2: and, and that's the thing with kids. You have to take it day by day because every day, as you probably know, is incredibly different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying this, Nicole. And thank you to your instructors and your professors, because I think this is so much of what I just sort of try to like bang through SLPs' heads. Because I think so, you know, as as SLPs and, and, and good SLPs, we're so focused on the research and what we should be doing clinically. But There's so much to be said about the patient perspective and to really, like you said, just take a step back and look at the patient as a whole, see what the family's goals are, see how we can work with the family and not against them. And I think I'm so grateful that you're learning that. As a grad student, because it's so important and it's going to help you with your critical thinking skills so much in your career. Um, of course, the research is important. Of course, we need to practice evidence based, but part of practicing evidence based is, is really honoring the patient's wishes and following sort of their wishes and needs and commands and, and, and cues if we're talking about babies. So, um, thank you for bringing this part up because it's so, so, so important and it's often so overlooked.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, uh, my, one of my undergraduate instructor, instructors had the best metaphor for evidence-based practice is that it's a three-legged stool, and you have to have all three legs for the stool to be able to stand and support weight. So one of that legs is, of course, you know, the scientific aspect of it. What evidence do we have for treatment? protocols and stuff like that so of course that's one of the legs that's incredibly important one of the other legs is your clinician experience because your experiences are valuable even if you have an experience from a different setting that doesn't mean that the experience is completely not notable in other settings it translates truly I mean, I think anybody working with pediatrics and geriatrics would actually say they're not all that different. They're really not. (laughs) They're very similar. And so we have that second leg of the clinician experience. You should use your experience because your experience is invaluable, honestly. And then that third leg of what the client wishes, because a lot of times I feel like if you're feeling stuck Looking at that third leg of the client's wishes, it's what's going to help you continue. Because I have no idea what other people are thinking and experiencing. And so that's the hardest part because you don't know until you ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the truth. And I have no idea. I can't read their mind. As much as I would love to be able to do that, I can't. So I have to know where they're at and where they think we're going in order for me to do my job in the best way that I can. And so really, we have to have all three legs. (laughs) There can't just be two legs. There can't just be one leg. There has to be all three. And I think that that's the the best metaphor that I experienced in my schooling of what really drove home for me of you have to know what they want because you can't do therapy in a way that doesn't approach what they want. Because I think anybody would tell you kids and adults, they're not going to be motivated if it's not what would help them or if they feel like if it's something that would help them. So it's it's going to be a lot more motivating if, You tailor it to what they want and what they are looking for from you.
1: And and the reality is, too, you know, Nicole, you learn once you get out working, too. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, my caseload's really low or, you know, I can't get this patient to come back in. They just haven't, you know, rescheduled. They canceled. They haven't rescheduled. And And I think what's interesting is, you know, as a as a parent who has a bajillion therapy sessions every week for my son to get to if that therapist or that clinician is not listening to me or is not listening to what is important to our family and to what I want us to work on and what I want my son to work on, I'm not going back to see you. So I think a lot of SLPs need to take a look in the mirror like, why is my case load low? Why are these patients not coming back to see me? Is it because you're forcing your agenda and you're wanting them to work on what you want to work on. And and I know sometimes there's going to be disagreements and there has been disagreements between, you know, myself and and therapists that my son has had, but we meet each other in the middle, you know, and, and I'll say, all right, I'm willing to work on your approach, but like, please understand this is what I'm working with and why that's difficult for us. And I think those are such important conversations to have. And I wish more SLPs would, try to sort of put their agenda and their biases aside and listen to the patient and work towards a common ground.
2: Well, and and that's, you know, part of the, I was was talking to my fiance just the other day about how difficult evidence-based practice can be in actual practice. Because when we talk about it in undergraduate courses, we're like, yeah, obviously I'm going to, you know, do evidence-based practice like that's easy what are you talking about why are we even talking about this and when you get to the reality of it I'm tired (laughs) you know SLPs are tired it's hard when you are just a regular person living your life you have all your own life stuff going on and that's incredibly difficult to balance sometimes with your clinical life Because, you know, maybe you came into work late because you were rushing to make your kids lunches and you didn't even get to pour yourself a cup of coffee and you're rushing into clinic, you're flying into the parking lot and your scrubs are messed up because something spilled on your shirt this morning and you're like, gosh, dang it. And then you're looking at your schedule and you're like, oh my gosh, I have eight patients today, back to back to back. I don't even know when I'm going to be able to eat lunch. And then it's like, are are you thinking in that moment, hey, let me look at this scientific based article? Like, no, you're not thinking that. When you have real life going on, it can be incredibly difficult to follow evidence based practice. And I think that's where some SLPs get into the rut of things of using the same treatment, the same protocol, the same kind of plans for a lot of patients because it's just easier. And so you have to make the conscious decision every day of I am going to be the best clinician that I can be, even if that means today that most of my sessions are going to be counseling to look at, you know, what this patient needs overall. And maybe some days I'm absolutely killing it and I am, you know, using these new treatments and they're working and people are getting better. But there are also just going to be some days where you're like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And that's okay. It's okay not to know, but you have to use all the tools that you have of evidence-based practice, you know, the science that we have, your experience that you have. And what the client wants wants to be able to know the next step. It's hard not to feel lost sometimes because it's hard. This is a hard job. And I think that's kind of the difference of being a student versus being a clinician. Of You know, really learning. I mean, you have real life going on and you're also trying to help people and give speech therapy at the same time. Yeah. And that's really hard.
1: <laughs> it, it It is hard. It, it's definitely a really difficult balance. And, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that I started the SLP Collective as a little shameless plug there. But uh, it is the reality. You know, we wear so many hats. We wear, you know, a lot of us wear mom hats and, and wife hats and, you know, seeing a bajillion patients a day and while all trying to stay on top of the research is really exhausting. And, and there's definitely something to be said about compassion fatigue too, you know, just, Thinking of all that your patients are going through, and and it's heavy. You know, some days, you know, I would work some days in the you know vent units, you know, for weeks on end, and it's it's heavy to just you know hear what traumatic things happen to this you know young teenager, or you know how their life and their family is so flipped upside down. It's 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 heavy stuff that we're dealing with, and and I think it's something that's not talked about enough for SLPs. Is you know how do we continue to find career fulfillment while also taking care of us. And there's a big self-care component that's that's in there. And um it's something that I've learned a lot over the last few years. I think having my son force me <laughs> to figure out how to take care of myself and, and balance my, you know, mental health and and well being there because I was in a horrible spot after him. I just was so emotionally Damaged and broken and I, and, and my work suffered, um, you know, and and it's easy to blame other things for why, you know, this isn't happening or this isn't working, but you know, you really just have to take a look in the mirror and and figure out, you know, get the help you need. And and there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of SLPs that are willing to help you out, um, as well. So it's, it's, it's some heavy stuff, Nicole. So I'm, I'm glad you're learning about this in grad school because I think a lot of SLPs, you know have these you know rainbow butterfly glasses on that this is such a wonderful profession. and it is a wonderful profession, but there's a lot to learn about personal responsibility and self care, and you ha- you've got to take care of yourself before you can take care of your patients too. so
2: absolutely. and I think that's a big difference between undergraduate and graduate, and even you know my I think my experience especially like I said in the beginning of of wearing the different hats of being a student and a clinician and a researcher and just a human being gave me this experience of how do I balance all of this? This is a lot because I would go, you know, from working full time in the skilled nursing facility, running around all day, you know, 7am to 4pm to and then drive home and then have to do data analysis on my research while I'm still in my scrubs and it's like i just want to take a shower and it was i really had to learn how to balance all of those and how to also not let those affect each other and how to how to switch out those hats because sometimes it was really hard for me to be objective in my research because I had experience with these kids and I could see these kids in my head while I was writing my research. And it's like, Oh my God, I just want to advocate for them. I just want to do all that I can for them because I love them. And I just, I want them to get better and they inspire me. But then it's like, how do I be objective of also looking at hard data and being able to interpret that from an objective standpoint, from all standpoints, looking at all the different perspectives. And I think it's, it's a learning process. I think a lot of SLPs would probably agree that even if you're not in school, you're still a student in some way, you know, whether you're taking a CEU course, or whether you're just, you know, learning about this new treatment practice, or whether you're, Completing competencies, you know, as a CEF and you're still getting those checked off. Like you there's always something that you're learning. And the reason that I was so passionate and still am so passionate about this field is that I wanted a job where there was always going to be an opportunity to learn and I love to learn. And I think that's what I love so much about this field is that there is never going to be a point in this field where I feel like I know everything. There's always something to learn, and that's a beautiful thing, but it can also be a hard thing. So like you said, I mean that self-care and not not trying to pour from an empty cup is so important to to learn early on. Mm-hmm. You know, to avoid that burnout and that compassion fatigue and everything like that, learning those skills early on is is truly just vital to not only your success as a clinician, but also your patient's success. Yes. And therapy, yes, because it all relates
1: to each other. <laughs> it very much does. I, I I love everything you're saying, Nicole, and I'm so glad you're you're learning this. You know, so so early on. I, I wish I didn't learn it as a you know running full force you know into a brick wall, but I did. But um, yeah, I I love that you're hearing this, and and there's just something to be said about you know showing up for your patients in the best way possible. You know, they're not there. You know, I th- I think it was um. John, the the creator of Simply Thick, he always says this and always hits home every time he says it, but your patients aren't there to see you because they're having a good day. You know, they're they're not there because they've got nothing better to do but go see Susie SLP. You know, they're there because they're having trouble communicating or eating. And these are huge, huge, you know parts of life. Um, So I think, you know, we owe it to our patients to show up as the best versions of ourselves and to bring our full self, you know, bring as much evidence as we know, but also don't be afraid to say, you know, Hey, I, this is sort of a new, a new area, but I'm willing to learn, or, you know, I don't know as much about this as I would like, but let me do some digging or, you know, you know, what are, what's your perspective on this? How can, you know, how can we meet in the middle here? What's important to you? What are your goals? And, and it's, it's, to me, it's so blatantly obvious when my son's therapists show up as their best selves and show up as someone that's hungry and willing to learn and, and truly, truly wants to be there to help him. Um, and, and it's, it's sad. It's, it's obvious. And, you know, we've had some other therapists that I've had to fire because they just, it's almost like they're showing up to collect a check and they're, you know, miserable about being there. It's it, and I don't know. I don't. I don't know what other burdens they're carrying. I, I. I cannot even begin to imagine. But if it is starting to affect your job, there's. You've got to do some some soul searching and and take a look in the mirror and figure out how you can get the help that you need to show up best for your patients. Absolutely well I love where we took this podcast nicole I don't think that was on our agenda to talk about but i, I I'm, yeah. so glad, I'm so glad you brought these things up because they're so 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 important and, and and I know that they're not taught as much in grad school as they should and and they' are fragile topics people don't want to talk about this stuff it's not the pretty you know pretty success stories that we all you know should hear about all the time but it's important so
2: we talk to our patients all the time about you know incorporating self-care and taking care of themselves and putting themselves first and being able to focus, but we also have to do the same thing for ourselves. And that's, that's not easy. It's not. Yep. Yep.
1: Well, thank you, Nicole. This was a wonderful conversation. I am so, so, so grateful you. So Nicole reached out and said, can we talk about this research that I'm doing? And I was like, yes, please. So, so thank you. I, I love this so much. I'm obviously very passionate about this topic. I, What's, what's next for you? Or do you think you're going to pursue a research career or are you going to just go ahead first clinically or what are you thinking?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely want to take a little bit of a break from being a researcher because I, I do really love the clinician side of it, honestly. Um, I I love almost every part of this field and I, I think I came into graduate school, I think my professors would agree I came into graduate school very focused. That was I was very, I was very like, Oh, I want to work with infants. I want to, I want to do this. This is the only area I want to do. And then when I started actually experiencing the different parts of this field, I was like, Oh my gosh, I actually like the schools and I like the sniff and I like the outpatient setting and I, I like everything. Like this field is so cool. I it really it. Is. Like, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm such a nerd for this field. And, um, I I think that's very encouraging for me. Um, So I'm currently in the process of trying to find where my uh, clinical fellowship will be. I don't know where it'll be yet. Awesome. uh, Are you willing to move? (laughs) <laughs> maybe all right if anybody's
1: listening and they need a wonderful cf please email me i would love to match make you with nicole here um, no but I, i'm serious nicole I, this conversation was wonderful and i i'm i'm so grateful to have you join our field because you're going to be such an asset to it and you bring such a beautiful perspective
2: i'm so grateful that you even have me or were willing to have me on the podcast i i truly never expected to, to be able to be on your podcast you know I was listening to your podcast as an undergraduate and if you had told me as an undergraduate that in two years I would be on the podcast myself I wouldn't have believed you you know so I mean truly if if there are any students listening like don't don't be afraid to just go for it don't be afraid to just go for it because I never expected myself to be here. And I put a lot of hard work into getting to this point, but I never expected it to result in in this. And I'm so incredibly grateful and blessed. And I'm just honestly so thankful that you were able to take this time with me and and have me on the podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Nicole. I appreciate you so much. And um, yeah, best of luck to you in the future. I'm so glad you're joining our field. And I know you're going to be just a wonderful asset. So um, thank you again for joining us.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me.
1: To download the show notes from this episode, please visit Podcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic
0: to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny B. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and
1: to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.